This is Me, Myself and Disaster, the show all about disasters with a human focus. From hurricanes to humanitarian issues, we journey across fault lines to explore trends in disaster preparedness, response and recovery and understand how our guests became involved in disasters. Over to you, Josh and Andrew. Hello and welcome back to Me, Myself and Disaster, the show where we talk all things disaster with a human focus. What a few months it has been, Andrew. La Nina has made a real impact here in Australia. We've both been on the ground following floods across eastern Australia and the damage has really been quite significant. As communities consider their next steps and move forward on their long recovery journey, there has been plenty of debate about whether allowing people to build back on floodplains is the right move. And also, considering the increasing flood risk and the changing weather environment and what that means for people on the ground. But today, we're looking at how some residents in Brisbane recovered from the 2011 flood, knowing that more floods would be inevitable in the future. Andrew, who's joining us on the show today? Josh, you're not wrong about the damage being significant. 750 trucks of rubbish a day are being carted out of flooded communities in the northern rivers. If people are going to rebuild in some of these areas, perhaps as a way of rebuilding differently to minimise the future impact of floods. To find out more, we're joined today by Dr James Davidson, the director of JDA Co, an architecture firm who designed buildings to better withstand the impacts of natural hazards. James has a diverse range of architectural experience, including working overseas following major disasters and is a director of Emergency Architects Australia. Following the 2011 Brisbane floods, James has worked with Brisbane City Council to support the implementation of flood resilient building techniques. We'll be asking James what can be done to improve the flood resilience of houses on floodplains, the economics of implementing these changes and how houses James' firm has worked on fared during the recent floods. This episode has something for everyone and is extremely relevant to where we find ourselves in Australia at the moment. Let's chat with James Davidson on Me, Myself and Disaster. James Davidson, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Now, your experience, um, you've had a lot of experience, as we mentioned in the introduction, in the architecture space and particularly doing even emergency stuff overseas. What, what prompted you to get involved in this particular space in disasters and, and what, what was sort of your experience prior to coming to this, this role? Um, well, let's go way back. I grew up with a mum who was disabled and um, as her disability got worse, as she got older, um, um, our house was um, modified, um, thanks to the government at the time, with occupational therapists and things like that. I, I, th- I think I've looked back, and other than enjoying building tree houses, um, I think that that was part of the reason I got into architecture in the first place. Because I, I sort of saw how our living environment kind of was modified, and I. And I really, as a, it, it had a big impression on me as a young person. I think that um, there were literally people in our society who actually cared about others, and um, and I always enjoyed talking to the occupational therapist because I was part of the briefing. And um, you know, when our taps got changed, and our, and our stairs got changed, and our bathroom got changed, and our toilet even got changed at one point. So um, I think that um, yeah, I didn't come into architecture um, with any form of understanding that I was just going to be doing, you know, amazing projects for um, people who could afford architects basically. So I, it was a bit of a surprise when I finally got into architectural education and, and realised, oh, hang on, this doesn't really kind of fit what I had imagined 
um, for myself. And it did take me some time. I was always, I was always kind of involved in some form of, um, um, you know, social enterprise, I suppose, or, um, social justice, um, in, you know, whether it was as a student of architecture, I would, I got involved in, um, uh, with a group called Acro up here that, um, you know, helped, um, young boys, um, whose parents were in jail. And I did that for about a year sort of on weekends. And so I've always kind of had like, you know, we'd go fishing and riding bikes and go to the movies and go swimming and whatever. And so I've always sort of had, had that as a kind of an aim in my life. Like I, I feel very privileged to have had the ability to come from where I've come from to now. And so, you know, um, but it did take me a little bit of time to kind of work out how I could, um, come back into architecture with that kind of idea because it's not typical um, what we do in this practice. And so that has formed, that's sort of been an evolving process. Um, I got involved in Aboriginal environments for a long time, did my PhD in that kind of area in architecture and um, and then spent quite some time doing Aboriginal um, housing and cultural centres and things. Um, and then through Emergency Architects Australia um, in the early to mid 2000s, I um, got involved in doing um, projects um, internationally um, from Brisbane, essentially. And so we were doing aid projects um, as part of that foundation. Um, that then led to a realisation that, you know, with when you get involved in these kinds of things, you can spend a lot of time and energy and, um, and potentially if you're doing it in a different cultural context, you might miss the mark and that's what happened. I felt that. So when, um, the fires in King Lake happened, um, my sister lost her house there. That was in 2009. Um, I saw an opportunity, well, not an opportunity, but it, well, it was an opportunity to help, um, my sister initially, and then others, um, as part of the emergency architects, um, foundation. And that then sort of enabled me to kind of realize, well, there is a, there is a place for architects in, in disaster um, assistance and plus I'm of our cultural context. So it was a lot easier than going into somewhere that we thought we were doing the right thing and then finding out years later that it wasn't the right thing to do. So um, I then chose to, when the floods in 2011 in Queensland happened, um, we jumped to and started doing pro bono work um, for uninsured homeowners and it's just gone from there. So we, we specialise in flood resilience. Um, we're also now starting to specialise in bushfire resilience. Um, being an architect working in North Queensland, we're across a lot of cyclone stuff as well. So we're sort of getting involved in storms and a whole range of things. So um, the practice is now kind of diversifying into all areas of climate change adaptation with, with the aim to be doing a whole bunch of research up front through doing pro bono work a lot of the time where we find out a lot of things and then um, we put that into practice and um, with the aim to be providing solutions that are affordable for Australian um, people essentially and um, though hopefully primarily for those who are in the most vulnerable um, settings and they can't afford a lot of the um, 
professional services that others can. So that's sort of where we kind of aim to be. We're certainly in a growing industry and I think it's, it's interesting because Josh and I both um, prior to going to uni to become engineers wanted to be architects and sort of scrapped <laughs> that dream and ended up you in You made disaster. the right choice. <laughs> <laughs> I still have – I drive past a nice house. Like, oh, I'd just love to go and design a nice house like one day when I can afford to. But like it's, well, uh, it's one of those things that now – Believe me, from my experience, all you got to do is get the money – turn around to an architect and say, help me, and then you just tell them what to do. I mean, you know, and then you too can be a designer. I think um, personally I think I did my PhD in architectural anthropology and I have that belief that there's a designer in all of us. That's, it's just human to mm. think about a, a problem and then try and design a solution. That's, that's, we've probably done that forever. So therefore, you know, that's a good thing. This conversation has had me excited for weeks. I've been a, ca- a kid in a candy shop thinking about this. I know Andrew, um, very similar. You know, we have a big pa- passion personally between the two of us around, you know, functional design and how that plays into, you know, not just something that looks pretty, but is also functional. And this notion that you can actually build something to protect someone or protect something that you love as well, but also, you know, functionally be, be pleasing to someone is, you know, a really exciting concept. And I think obviously the environment that we find ourselves in at the moment is, is a conversation that a lot of us are going to be having. Um, what I'd like to do though, cause I know that Brisbane, Brisbane is a big kind of moment for your firm and for yourself as well around where a lot of this kind of took off domestically. Can you take us through the, you know, what, what did that look like for your firm? So the, the Brisbane floods unpack for some of our listeners that may not be from Australia, you know, what, what was the Brisbane 2011 floods and, you know, what did that mean for you? What did your firm do um, after that? How did you get involved? You know, what was that story? So the 2011 event basically was a huge kind of wake up call um, to the city um, and, I think something like 28,000 properties um, were flooded. Now, prior to that, we were all in a little bit of a kind of, um, what would you say, um, um, a total lack of awareness that the hard infrastructure of Wyvernhoe Dam was um, potentially a problem. Like we, I think after the 1974 floods in Brisbane, um, the state built Wyvernhoe Dam and I get the feeling that the the narrative around the dam was that oh it's never going to flood again in Brisbane because we're going to we're doing all this work and that's definitely the kind of thing that you would imagine that people who need to sell the idea of a big dam would say like I would have done the same thing probably myself and um, but I don't think at that point they were imagining we'd be facing the kind of weather events that we're now facing with the change that we're sort of seeing where there's, um, you know, I think 2011 had twice as much water as 1974. Um, and Wyvernhoe did incredibly well. And I don't blame the dam operators for what happened personally. I think that, um, um, it was, we'd had come off, I think nine years of drought at that point. So there was a huge public, um, there was huge public pressure to not release a lot of water and they were just, everybody was just hoping and praying that the rain would stop, but it didn't. So at some point they do have to release the water so otherwise the dam would fail and then there's a catastrophe essentially. Um, so immediately after that, it was kind of like what they call a blue sky flood where the rain had stopped and then four days later we start flooding kind of thing. And um, 
well, two to three days to four days. And then um, I think after having had the experience in um, King Lake with the fires down there, I um, was still at the time part of emergency architects. And so I kind of organized a, um, um, assistance kind of where we ran a whole series of events to, to see if there was interest by architects to get involved in doing pro bono assessments on how to help assist people in understanding how to build back better. Um, at the same time, it was kind of almost like building the plane as we were flying it because we were learning what at the time, what didn't, didn't work. And it was very obvious that certain building typologies just don't suit flood environments. And, and also the other thing was that the most vulnerable, most vulnerable people are the ones that generally get affected the most. And at the same time, there are a lot of issues with insurance, i.e. some insurers not claiming that it was a, it was a discrepancy in the definition of a pluvial versus a fluvial event and whether that your flooding came from the river or from stormwater or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, there were just a lot of people in sort of parts of Ipswich, west of Brisbane, uh, Goodna. Goodna is an interesting case. We did a lot of work in Goodna pro bono where I think initially we had 300 interested architects and then we ended up settling on 60 who could put the time and effort in on their weekends um, over six months to, and we coordinated a whole army of people. We had um, one architect with two students generally going around. The students were doing the recording and the architect was actually talking to people and filling out an assessment form that then was given back to the homeowner to sort of assist them. We had moisture meters reading moisture content in timbers. So we'd say to people, please don't put your plasterboard back up. You're going to face a lot of mold issues, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, we learned how kitchens worked, what were the most critical things in a kitchen design. It typically came down to the bench top. Um, that's the most sort of expensive component a lot of the time in the kitchen. So if the carcass fails, then the bench top cracks, you've got to replace the whole thing. So we started developing ideas around, well, what didn't, didn't work and what could be done better. And, you know, simple things like just don't try try your best to not to have a cavity construction system. So a gap between two layers where water can get in and then mold can grow. And, um, that might be great for new projects, but what, what do you do for retrofitting existing homes? And so over the course of, you know, the 10 years post that event, we've spent a lot of time and effort working up detailing um, with builders on the ground, doing flood resilience projects um, that then, you know, after doing sort of 250 odd assessments um, in 2011, we, um, were then asked to do a few projects that because we got sort of known to a lot of people can't afford to elevate and but it's hard to think around the issue of well what is a flood resilient house and so we, we had a few clients that were really keen to look at that because they hadn't received much of a payout from their insurers and so they couldn't afford to raise and then um, rebuild their their property so um, we started putting our ideas and our research into, into actual practice and learning again and then modifying. And there's always a, I, I like the idea of, you know, an empirical based research process and action research where you 
you just accept the fact you're not going to get it perfect. And as long as your clients accept that too, and which they did at the time because it was better than the alternative, which is building back like for like, um, then there was a certain level of acceptance of risk, which I think is um, very important in terms of community education and engagement. Um, saying to people, look, we're not mitigating water. We're not stopping it. You, if you want to continue to live here and live in this area where you've got your kids in school and your local church down the road and your shops and your hospital nearby, if you do want to continue to live here, then you do have to accept a certain level of risk. And um, that's sort of where we've gotten to. It's, I think it's a really interesting notion. It's something that Andrew and I have talked a lot about, you know, in our, in our roles that we do and also through, you know, our podcasts that, you know, talking to people all around the world. Um, it's this really interesting notion. I think you just touched on it there is around you need to have, you need to cover off on both bases. There's obviously the engineering method um, that you do, the, the practical building um, that you do. But one of the things that I think people get wrong a lot of the time is actually the engagement with individuals and community. And I'd like to unpack a little bit more. You know, how did that go for you? Because, it, you know, we often go into communities or we've seen around the world that obviously some of these things are quite emotional. These are people's lives. This is where they've lived. They've got connection. They've got relationships. Um, you know, a sense of belonging and place is a really important thing and central thing to, to being a human being. Um, yeah, how did you manage some of that? Um, you know, d- is there any stories around how you manage some of those, you know, conversations? Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> I'm glad you've kind of touched on that because prior to this, I was thinking a little bit about it and, you know, what, what are the kind of major kind of interesting things that I've, you know, I don't really like reading too many books about stuff, you know, like theories on whatever. I'd, I'd prefer to be out there and then learning and experiencing and then reflecting. And I think the reflection that I have is um, it's a bit, a bit out there, but anyway, I'll, I'll put it out there. Um, <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> people generally fall into a spectrum from my experience of um, the brain at one end and the heart at the other. And a lot of people are really good at thinking and the brain side of things. And then others are really good at the heart side of things. So empathy and you know, that, um, I believe that the balance is required. And if you personally don't have that as a professional, if you don't have the balance, that's okay. You just have to team up with somebody who has the, the, the other side of that, that equation in a sense, and the scales kind of, you, you, you have to respect each other. And I think part of, the architectural education that because oftentimes people say, well, why do we need architects? To, you know, we, it's come up on this current state government project we're working on, which is, you know, $740 million rollout. And my response is, I think as an architect, um, your job is to communicate and translate an idea to your client in a way that respects their brief but kind of returns that brief to them to show that well maybe things could be done in a little bit of a better way or different or if they've got a great idea then that's great too but I, I feel like we're always the kind of translators so when our engineers for instance give us their designs it's our job to explain what that really means to the client who's paying the money for that etc etc so I feel like architects a lot of the time we 
people who tend towards architecture, which is interesting that you guys said originally you might want to be architects because maybe that's why you're even asking me these questions because you might actually have a balance already. You've just headed down the engineering side of things. So I think that's not to say engineers don't have empathy or anything like that and architects do. That's not that at all. It's just that we're all on a spectrum of the heart and the brain. And so therefore when it comes to kind of communicating um, ideas to people, especially around flooding, while we have been able, we're good at doing the detailing and all the practical pragmatic stuff, we've become very good at communicating the flood risk and showing how, say, when we get a floor level survey, what that does in relate, what that means in relation to a particular flood level or a projected flood level into the future. And so I feel like that's a critical, critical component. And the work we've been doing in Brisbane, um, the council, we've done, I think we've done almost 250 assessments and or more actually, almost 300 now. And we've built uh, almost 150 projects and councils had um, surveys done pre-service, uh, pre-assessment where we go into people's homes and we talk about flood risk and what we can do for them, um, post-service and then post actual works and what's been shown is that 80 to 90 percent of people um, say that they have a much greater awareness of their flood risk after our and they know where to get more information after our assessment and then I think there's been a drop I think in 96 percent of people from serious levels of concern to moderate levels of concern after the works have been completed. So I think that it's not just about doing drawings for builders to build stuff. It's how do you actually communicate the issue in a way that's really easy to understand and people can then make an appropriate choice and they, they feel empowered to make a choice for their families over a longer period of time. That's sort of... I'd almost say that from what I'm hearing, and this is the view I'm starting to develop after hearing a few stories and following some things, it's almost that, you know, I almost put architects and in, in terms of this specific context, almost part of the healing journey. You know, this is, as we all know, recovery, it's a journey. It's not something that just happens. It's people, you know, going through the cycle, understanding what's happened to them, you know, then understanding, you know, Maslow's um, getting higher up and actually realizing their aspirations. To me, this whole process is almost part of the healing process. You guys are actually part or play a role um, in people's recovery journeys, which is a healing process, which I find is really interesting that, that almost that intersection between mathematics and things that are very black and white and non-emotional. Love, that, that, love yeah. that stuff. Love that yeah. stuff. <laughs> that intersection yeah. with that. And that's important. And yeah, exactly. But then the, the real empathetic side that people have emotions and you said it at the start is that you think that innately everyone's got a, a sense of design in them. Um, so, you know, being part of that process, I think is really interesting. I think that um, it's we're tasked initially to be critical thinkers about and to try and predict all sides to a story. Like, you know, here's another thing. I, you know, read a book a long time ago by, I think it was the head of Shell and the Dalai Lama together about how do you um, kind of um, reconcile capitalism and Buddhism. And... Um, 
it talked about, um, which something has always stuck with me is, um, say you've got your own opinion on something. It's, you can't just, you shouldn't just move forward with that until you've actually evaluated the alternative opinion from all different angles and all different sides of the story. And I think that that's kind of what the architectural sort of education does is it's very subjective. It's very open-ended. It's very, un- unfortunately for a lot of people who fall out of it, that's what they struggle with. I think a lot of the time is it's not objective and, um, it's, it's, it's not like you can, it's not black and white and, you know, um, it's just too subjective, but, but if you, if you can kind of engage with that and you're the kind of person that sort of, that sort of suits, um, um, then you can actually have a pretty, pretty fruitful career. And, and where that, the end story, the end of that story was that by looking at all different sides to your own opinion, you can then, it's called right view or something like that. You know, you come out of it with the right view, which then leads to the right way. And you might actually be wrong in your own opinion, but, and you'll realize that as you go through that journey of questioning. And I feel that um, that's sort of what, where architects can play a, a role. And my only l- lament, I suppose, is that my industry um, has shifted away from where it originally began. I feel like it's now become a bit of an Instagram kind of, you know, if you're not on Instagram putting up pretty pictures of almost impossible projects that most people can't even imagine being living in or being involved with architects. Generally, we like to talk to other architects. We're very concerned with what we all think. And unfortunately I feel like, but that's not to say that there aren't people, architects out there who, who aren't like that in a sense. It, I, I feel like you just only ever hear about the ones that are like that. You, you never hear about the ones that are probably just happy to be helping people without having to put stuff up all the time on Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn and all the rest. And I'm guilty of all that stuff. So I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. Um, so I feel like we've lost our relevance and hopefully going forward, my profession and in the industry realizes that we're probably very good at serving our society instead of just serving the people that can afford us. Um, as long as we can communicate why we're, why we should even be in the room. So. And on affordability, really keen to sort of understand too. So let's like hypothesize for a minute that um, I've been living in a flood affected area and my house has been damaged. And you mentioned a few of those things earlier around building in sort of more plastic kitchens. And I think we spoke earlier around um, sealing the floorboards to the walls and those sort of things that really prevent that from happening. And you can retrofit houses with this sort of stuff or build new new houses that uh, are more protected. I think one of your staff uh, moved back in 24 hours after the flood happened um, because they were to wash down the house and basically return home because he put those things in there to protect his property from from that damage. But I'm wondering, what's the, like, have you run any economics on this to understand that if you put a little bit of investment in now, what's the estimated saving later? Like, is, is it worth financially doing this sort of stuff now to make an investment in, in retrofitting or building a property with these measures in place to save a bit down the track when your house gets impacted by a flood? Have you, have you done anything in that space? Yeah, absolutely. So we, um, one of the first things I did when we were designing the Brisbane City Council Flood Resilient Homes Program was um, bring an economist in 
um, who set up an economic model based on the um, sort of the life of, say, a mortgage, for instance, and across a 30-year kind of span. And what we've done, <clears throat> having set the model up in the beginning, we're now across having now having done you know, 140 built projects or more, 150 almost. Um, we've been inputting all that data into the model as we've received as we've finished projects. So we've actually put in. You know, we now know what the cost is per linear meter for X amount, you know, particular type of wall finish. Um, we know how much roughly we've got all these benchmarks for things, and I can tell you in terms of cost benefit. Um, we're sitting some, depending on the kind of house and the location and all the, you know, the strategies that we do, we're sitting at pretty much for every dollar spent, we're getting a benefit of um, a, somewhere between six to eight dollars. Wow. Oh, geez, um, that's huge. Yeah, it is. It is. It's huge. And that's all been, you know, peer reviewed and properly done. Um, that sort of stuff, as you can imagine, is beyond me. Um, I can understand it when it's explained to me, but you guys would probably eat it up. Um, <laughs> and, um, but yeah, I think, um, we've tried very hard to make sure that the stuff that we do, um, you can just buy from Bunnings a lot of the time. It's not, a lot of people keep thinking that flood resilient design, um, is expensive, but it doesn't have to be. And, um, my intent is I'm pretty sure that these last, these recent events will be the last time people will be able to afford insurance. I reckon that after this, there's going to be a lot more people out there that can't, that have no insurance. Yeah. There's a lot of people already that don't have an insurance. So I'm not too concerned about um, proving to insurers about the affordability of stuff and that they should build back better, et cetera. I think we need to bring on building code reform to force them into doing it. Um, mandate the, the detailing that we've come up with. I think um, there's a good online resource that we produced publicly for the state government here in Queensland called the, I think it's Flood Resilience Guidance for Queensland Homes or something like that. It's got all the detailing that anybody ever needs um, to, to know what to do in certain instances. Um, I think where we need to be concerned, significantly concerned for our society is the effect on poverty that these events and continual events are going to have like insurance keeps people out of poverty i feel i feel like if you're on the if you if you can still afford insurance right now you're probably beyond a, a level of falling back into poverty but what's going to keep happening is the insurers keep factoring in risk and the risk keeps going up so the premiums keep going up and like even sam who you just mentioned um my, you know, one of the guys that works with us, um, we've, he's been here since day one, you know, I don't know, 10, more than 10 years now and built his house resiliently, put in a minor claim with the insurer. Um, and then it just so happened that he had to renew his policy. Or um, So after having been through an event, being back in within 24 hours, which we've seen a lot of with the work we've been doing, one to two days back in, um, minor claim for, you know, minor things. Uh, his insurance premium has now been increased by $200 a month just mm. after this current event. So I am now no longer confident that insurers will drop premiums on the back of flood resilience. I think they will say, oh, we just haven't given you an increase as much as we could have. That's how they're going to do it. 
pretty sure. So basically, um, if you're living on a floodplain, you're on your own then, and like it's sort of you've got to take yeah. that risk into into account and do it yourself. This is going to keep, and this is going to keep pushing people into poverty. I think more and more as more, as we as we see more and more of these events, like northern New South Wales, guaranteed. I, I reckon if you did a survey on who can now afford insurance after this event, it, it'll be very interesting to see. So I guess the interesting thing is. When is, like, where do you draw the line? Has there been some conversation around that? Because obviously we can do retrofit. Obviously we can do a whole piece around adaptation. But, you know, where does that line sit? And I think maybe that's a, maybe that's a community discussion that needs to happen around what, what amount of risk are we willing to accept as a community, you know, government, all the players in this space. But from your opinion, James, is there a line where you kind of have to say the risk far outweighs the investment of actually, you know, putting in and, and investing into some of these measures? Yeah. Um, I thought a lot about this and I believe that in a way, depending on the circumstance, flood regime design is in, in say those areas of northern New South Wales like Lismore, personally, flood resilient design is a band-aid solution to buy us time to make the important decisions we need to make. And that important decision is retreat and get out of there. If you're seeing, you know, four metres of water coming at 12 metres a second down a hill, for instance, so, and don't stay there if, it's a, if you're going to risk your life staying there. Don't believe that a dam is going to fix it. Don't believe a levee is going to fix it. We've seen these things be proposed and they just don't work because you can't control where water falls. Like, like we saw in Brisbane near the recent event, most of the water fell out of the catchment for Wyvernhoe, so which is why we flooded. Um, all our creeks flooded and they're not connected to Wyvernhoe at all. So there's creek, riverine, overland flow. Um, the cool thing about flooding compared to bushfire and cyclones is that it's topographically based. So you can actually predict pretty, pretty well based on historical events and we're getting better and better at it. Now we've got satellites to help us with things like LIDAR information that's recording during live, like live during events. We can, we can see where the water went because obviously, you know, you put water in at the top of a hill in a river system or a creek system or even in a valley, it will find its way down that path to the sea and or into a lake or a dam or whatever you want to say. But um, so therefore, we now know where our risk sits a lot of the time. We can then say what's the probable maximum flood level and I would even say beyond probable maximum flood level, I actually believe that a lot of the probable maximum flood levels, they don't get the hidden detail a lot of the time in a lot of the modelling. Um, I actually think we should also be thinking about, well, what's a catastrophic level of flooding um, beyond probable maximum PMFs and all of that? Because, um, and then is that manageable given the top topography that our city or our community sits on? Um, and how about we go, we propose a long-term master planning strategy. We don't just turn around tomorrow and say to people, oh, you, you, you got to get out of here. You, you know, like we're affecting community. We're affecting mortgages, livelihoods. Like 
what do you do? Buy people back and then they can't afford to leave and stay in their community. Their kids have to leave school. They have to, like, these are complex issues. So the better way to do it is to design a, a way, like, that shows and be upfront and say, hey, guys, so that you're not, so that you're totally aware your house isn't going to be here in 30 years' time. We're planning for this house not to be here. It's important to be upfront about it, but it will give you time, hopefully over the next 15, 20 years, to raise your kids. Yes, you're going to probably be flooded again, but that's your risk if you want to stay there. We can't stop the water. We're not going to build a dam because it's just not going to work. Um, we can design your house, retrofit it for flood resilience, um, but be aware that longer term, given the projections that, and in a way projections are already occurring. Like it's, we saw recently in Brisbane, I hate using these terms like one in 100 year events because or one in 200 year events because it's not that. It's the 1% chance every year, that level, that's huge. We saw in Brisbane a lot of creek flooding around Brisbane. It went to the half a percent, so that one in 200 year event, which is like even beyond huge. We weren't thinking that was going to happen for another 20 to 30 years. It's, it just happened. So we got, I think, I think I can't, I, I heard the statistics recently. I think that we got the same amount of rain that we had in 2011 in, I forget the, the length of time, but it might've been a month or something. We got that in like five days in the recent event. So it's happening. And um, I think that there are solutions to planning whereby we can predict where to kind of relocate people within a community. So perhaps it's a discussion about greater density to retain community and population, not just here's some money, see you later, you're out, you, you got to go and move to somewhere where you can't, where you can only now afford to move to because of population growth and property values and stuff like that. So These, these are all challenging things. I mean, this is going to take, well, these are big discussions that we need to have, I think, and I think planning early is what we need to do and, and have these discussions now and consider what this means. And they're not, they're not comfortable conversations to have, I don't think, and I think all level of government are considering now, like we've had these floods which caused, well, I mean, it wasn't PMF, but it was certainly above 1 in 100, which closed major highways and caused such a level of disruption that you think, well, the actual cost of building a little bit higher and building to um, close to the PMF rather than above 1 in 100 starts to go, well, the economics of that amount starts to make sense now and maybe we need to build higher and realise that these 1% events are going to happen more frequently and we're going to see more catastrophic events with bigger damages because we've built over time um, on these floodplains in areas we probably probably shouldn't have. So where where do you think, James, these conversations start? Because I think there's there's almost two problems to solve here. One is the one is the here and now. You know, we're dealing with legacy decisions that we can't control. Those decisions have already been made. The damage has been done. It's a matter of, as you said, that manage retreat and thinking through how we actually step our way our way back from the cliff. But to me, there's also a conversation in that we can actually stop some of this now for future. You know, we can actually have a mature conversation around now is the time to stop. This will be the non-negotiable around we're not going to put individuals in this risk in the future. 
How do we navigate those conversations? Is that something that needs to start with government? Is it community? Is it, you know, where, how do you see this playing out? How do you, where do you think the conversation needs to start? It starts with the fact that we spend 97% of our funding post events. And who manages that? Generally, it's the military, right? As in like, they always bring in some almost retired general or, you know, expert, like, and I believe the reason for that, why we go to the military is because I believe that historically we trust the military to have a good brain and a good heart. And I actually think if we, if we flipped that scenario and spent 97% of our recovery money in preparation, again, have the military don't trust the politicians because they're conflicted because in a way they have a four-year term or a three-year term or whatever, they're probably banking on the fact that don't have the hard conversations now because realistically the next event that comes around, they're probably not going to be in anyway. So why, why be brave? Why, why, why put your, stick your neck out? And that's a problem for our society because people who are brave in this instance probably get criticised heavily and get abused and get kind of yelled at because they're scaring people. And, um, but I believe that they need to be brave and they should, people need to be scared because better to, better to be told about stuff than surprised by it and make it a, but, but when you're told stuff that's uncomfortable to hear, don't then turn around and try and find blame with dam operators or, you know, engineers or like, don't, we can't stop this. We can do our best obviously in reducing our carbon footprint and all of that. But the the fact is climate has changed already. And it's like, I hate this, the discussion points now about, oh, well, we can, we can slow down climate change or we can stop climate change or we've got another 10 years and, and then it's, the tipping point, blah, blah, blah. I, I just think that's just, it's a, it's a, it's a stupid discussion because it's like, it's, it's already here. Um, yes, let's continue to do our best in terms of our carbon footprint, etc. That makes a lot of sense. Why should we waste energy and put it into the atmosphere? I, I feel that, yes, okay, let's do everything we can possibly do. But the reality is we're now facing a situation where, you imagine a world without insurance? Like, I can't. I mean, if, as in, it would be a pretty scary place. And typically what happens when that happens is governments nationalise insurance schemes. So the government steps in. And then it doesn't prevent people from sliding into poverty. So in a way, I feel like have the hard conversations now to prevent chaos later. And, and but our community and our society have to reward the people that are willing to stick their necks out. And it's a problem for us. So that's why I think maybe we get the military to coordinate the politicians rather than the politicians coordinating the military. Because I feel like if there was an overarching agency above politics that could like say the NDRRA was a statutory authority, places like the Netherlands do that. They, they have a system on top of government that plans for sea level rise and river room for the river and things like that. So it's been done before. It can be done. 
we just have to keep the the conflict out of it and get everyone working together. Like, for example, I'm thinking in the Ukraine right now, you don't have the politicians arguing over where to throw bombs and stuff, right? It's, it's serious. And I feel like climate change is the same kind of thing. We are at war with climate change. We just don't realize it. And our society is at risk and we kind of continue along our wealthy path because we're relatively wealthy society and got everything we need. And, but it's sort of, just seems to be coming at us. And I, I, I don't know. I'm just, that's probably why I got into this 10 years ago. I saw yeah. it coming. And- it's like when I go and t- um, talk to people on the ground who've been impacted by disasters, it's always the same conversation. Oh, I didn't see it coming. I never expected it to be this bad. It's just like monumentally bad. And their life has been severely impacted by this. And these are discussions we need to be having around actually preventing this happening in the first place. And these are, as you said, longer than a four-year term. It's looking at the threat down the path. And there are some uncomfortable situations and decisions we need to make ahead of that um, to get there. But I think Jane's raised a good point, though. It's almost like we need to remove the ideology out of it and look at the yeah. facts. Yeah. So rather than being a conversation around what my personal opinion or belief may be, that we anchor these conversations in facts and evidence, yeah. um, and that just becomes the governing thing. That becomes what we make decisions on. Um, and, and I think that that's how the military does things. Mm. That's their brain. And then they're seen as being um, – uh, they've got they've got our best interests at heart too, which is why I think we trust them and we always go to them when when you know can I swear on this um, podcast <laughs> when yes. things are going wrong. Let's just say <laughs> I was going to say when shit happens, but you know I won't say that. Um, but no, I, I was I've been thinking about it a lot recently and why do we go to the military? And it's like because um, they have the ability, they've got good infrastructure, they've got us, they've got discipline, structure. Um, I'm not a military person <laughs> at all. Like, um, but, um, but if we could put their energies into preparation more than recovery, mm. when, when the recovery does happen and would need to be, need to be done, hopefully the community's ahead of the game and they're recovering themselves. And that's what we've seen in the work we've done recently. It's, you know, there was a, a big moment um, in the recent event in Brisbane where, you know, I was getting, when the flood started happening, I was like, I was actually quite anxious and nervous to sitting at home thinking, oh, how's it all going to go? Like, cause none of our work had really been tested since 2011. And over the course of the weekend, I started receiving texts from clients and customers that we'd been dealing with and saying, oh, thank God we did this. And thank you so much. And you know, you're a lifesaver and all this sort of stuff. And I started thinking, well, and then all of a sudden they're messaging photos of water and videos. And, and then a couple of days later, they're messaging photos of having cleaned up and back in and, and, and then they're helping their extended family and their neighbors and who haven't built resiliently. So I think in a way the community will help themselves um, as long as they're helped in the first place. And part of that is engage, talk to them, tell them, what it is because you know doing these events like a lot of people don't actually know what adaptation is like if you sit a whole bunch of high net individuals in who control a lot of decision making and you ask them what's adaptation i guarantee it'll be like oh, oh it's more government funding or something like that like it won't be practical you know, or invest in 
invest in the um, upper catchments or something. It's like, well, what does that look like? What, what is it? Let's get down to the nitty gritty of stuff. Let's get the brain going and, and then let's get the heart going and kind of meet in the middle sort of a thing. So. Can I just take a moment to say thank you? Because I think this is a conversation um, that Andrew and I have been really excited to have. Um, and I think it's a really pivotal conversation that we need to have. And like Andrew and, and yourself been saying, it's going to be a hard one, but it's something that I think we need to keep in the light. So from us, it's just a big thank you for, you know, your dedication to this area and, you know, creating a firm that, you know, has this, this focus at its heart is, is um, really uplifting for us in disasters because often we're so involved in disasters and, you know, we think about preparation, think about recovery, but knowing that, um, you know, disasters are really the nexus of everything that, you know, other individuals are thinking about their work with a lens of disaster across it is really encouraging. Um, and I know that there'll be a commitment from us here at Me, Myself and Disasters that, you know, we keep that in the national conversation. You know, we keep talking about this here because I think that's one of the other key things. We need to keep this conversation on the agenda um, moving forward. Yeah. Oh, just one last thing. If you, um, if you guys don't mind, in saying that, um, I really appreciate you, um, you know, inviting me to come on and, um, and talk about these things. Um, I would like to kind of personally, and if you don't mind keeping this in the podcast, um, to thank the people that have actually trusted us, um, who trusted us post 2011, um, supporting our ideas, putting their own money towards things and, uh, uh, individual clients that, um, took a leap of faith on an idea. Um, the Churchill Fellowship, who did a similar thing with me and, how, and enabled me to kind of go overseas and meet some cool people and learn a lot of things. Um, the Brisbane City Council, like even though it's a, it's a council, it's, it, I think that they took a leap of faith as well and that's paid off big time. Um, who else? Like it more recently, actually, if you want to, we've, broadened ourselves into bushfire and there's a thing uh, a project that got released yesterday the fortis house um that's been done by the bushfire resilience um council of australia um kate and loretta that you know, it says there's a lot of good things happening and a lot of good people who are um out there willing to support things like this and um you know we just had the ideas we didn't you know, it was, it took a lot of people to kind of get us here. And so I'd like to kind of thank them too. Yeah. So, um, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. And you make me want to become an architect now. Like I think I don't remember <laughs> Josh, but I want well, to we're looking, we're looking for people. Don't worry about studying. Just, just download a certificate online. I'm sure you can find one and then, and then Yeah, apply. the five years of like hard work yeah. is what I just don't like the look of. But, uh, don't bother. Like, don't bother. <laughs> But you left us with a lot to think about, James, today, and we've certainly like challenged our sort of thinking on a, on a heap of things and really appreciate your time and, and to those who've worked with you to, to build these houses is, is much appreciated and um, great to get another perspective on, on rebuilding recovery from these floods. We've shared a few links and a few bonus extras from the show today on our website at memyselfdisaster.com. James Davidson, thanks for joining us on Me, Myself and Disaster. Thank you, guys. It's been a really, a really enjoyable conversation and um, good luck. Thanks, James. That's all we have time for on the show today. Join us again next time as we talk to more interesting guests from across the world about their experiences during disasters. We'll catch you then. Thanks for listening to Me, Myself and Disaster. 
Subscribe today at memyselfdisaster.com.